Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Roger Pilon. I'm the director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, which is your host for this afternoon's forum on the question, is the Electoral College obsolete? Um, the uh, U.S. Constitution, Article 2, Section 1, uh, provides that each state shall appoint, in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct, a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress. And then the Twelfth Amendment uh, changed that some. It provides that casting of electoral ballots, a majority of which suffice for election, for, for well over a century, uh, almost all states have elected to cast their votes by the unit rule in which the winner in the state receives all of that state's electoral votes. As you know, we have had a few elections in our history, presidential elections, in which uh, the Electoral College decided the outcome uh, which was contrary to the popular vote. The first of those was John Quincy Adams in 1824, uh, whereby Andrew Jackson won both the popular and the electoral vote. Um, Nevertheless, Adams was elected, and uh, Jackson was then elected after that for two terms. Um, in 1876, we had a very complex election in which Hayes um, won the presidency, despite uh, Tilden's having won the uh, popular vote, but that ended up being decided by a committee. Uh, in 1888, Grover Cleveland uh, won the presidency over Benjamin Harrison, who had won the popular vote. And then, of course, most recently in our closest uh, election in history, uh, Al Gore uh, narrowly uh, beat uh, George Bush in the popular vote, uh, but in the electoral vote he lost, and so George Bush became president, from which Al Gore has never recovered. Um, <clears throat> now... Uh, this has all led to the uh, uh, to something called the National Popular Vote Movement. Um, it's a plan that proposes an interstate compact to bring about direct election of the President of the United States. States that join the compact would agree to cast their electoral votes for the winner of the national popular vote for president. The compact would become valid once states with a majority of presidential electors sign on Congress must approve the compact before states can agree to it. Uh, as of now, five states have joined uh, this, uh, uh, this, uh, uh, this uh, compact. We're going to uh, have a debate today over the uh, wisdom uh, of this proposal. Uh, we were originally uh, going to have uh, Jamie Raskin from American University Law School. He had an emergency come up, and so we're very fortunate that John Koza, who is the head of this national popular movement, the, the author of it, actually, uh, to join us from California on short notice. So we're very grateful for him to do so. The plan is that uh, Dr. Koza is going to speak first for maybe five minutes or so just to lay out the plan for you. And then uh, Tara Ross, who is an opponent of the plan, is going to speak for somewhat longer uh, in opposition to it. Then uh, Dr. Koza is coming back to uh, speak longer himself uh, in response to Tara, and Tara will then respond in turn more shortly. Uh, they may have an exchange back and forth, and then we're going to open up the questions from you folks, and then we're going to break for lunch. 
All right. Uh, Dr. John Koza is the chair of the National Popular Vote uh, and lead author of the book Every Vote Equal, a state-based plan for electing the president by national popular vote. Between 1973 and 1987, he was co-founder and CEO of Scientific Games, Inc., uh, where uh, he co-invented the rub-off instant lottery ticket used by state lotteries, which has resulted in filling the coffers of state uh, lottery, uh, uh, states ever since. So if you don't like what states are doing, here's the man who's responsible for giving them the wherewithal with which to do it. Uh, he is a graduate of the University of Michigan, the college, as well as the graduate school where he did his doctorate in computer sciences. He's uh, currently a consulting professor in Stanford University's electrical engineering department. Please welcome Dr. John Koza. Well, my thanks to uh, the Cato Institute uh, and the Federalist Society and, and Roger uh, Pillen for inviting me uh, here today. The National Popular Vote Bill would guarantee the uh, White House to the presidential candidate who gets the most popular votes in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. <clears throat> the bill has been approved by 30 state legislative houses uh, in 20 states, including the recent uh, 52 to 7 vote in the New York Senate in which Republicans uh, favored the bill by a uh, 22 to 5 margin and in which uh, Republicans endorsed by the Conservative Party favored the bill by a 20 to 4 margin. <clears throat> there are two major shortcomings to the current system of electing the president. Uh, first, uh, as Roger just said, a second place candidate has uh, won the presidency in four out of our nation's 56 presidential elections. That's a 1 in 14 rate. But perhaps more importantly, uh, in every presidential election, the Electoral College matters, uh, and that's because two-thirds of the states and two-thirds of the voters are totally ignored uh, in presidential campaigns. Uh, Article 2 of the Constitution, as, as Roger pointed out, uh, gives each state legislature uh, plenary authority to award electoral votes uh, in the manner it sees fit. And the U.S. Supreme Court has repeatedly uh, characterized this authority as both exclusive uh, and plenary. Uh, today, 48 states use the so-called winner-take-all rule, or sometimes called the unit rule. Uh, that is, they award all of their electoral votes to the candidate who gets the most popular votes inside the state. Now, this winner-take-all rule is not in the Constitution. Uh, it's strictly a matter of state law. Uh, in our first election in 1789, uh, only three states uh, used the winner-take-all rule. <clears throat> uh, the National Popular Vote Bill uh, does not abolish the Electoral College. Instead, it changes existing state laws that relate to the uh, unit rule. Now, our National Popular Vote Bill, uh, it's an interstate compact. Uh, this is a mechanism that enables the states to jointly exercise powers that the states uh, possess, uh, and the compacts uh, are uh, authorized by the U.S. Constitution. Uh, under the National Popular Vote Compact, all of the electoral votes of all of the enacting states would be awarded as a block 
to the presidential candidate who gets the most popular votes in all 50 states. The compact would only take effect when it is enacted by states having a majority of the electoral votes. That is enough electoral votes to guarantee uh, the election of a president, and that's 270 out of 538. Now, you can get more information uh, about our, uh, the history of this and our proposal uh, in our book, uh, Every Vote Equal, uh, a state-based plan for electing the president by national popular vote, uh, uh, of which you can pick up a, a free copy if you haven't yet um, on the table outside. And uh, you can also uh, read it for free or download it for free uh, at our website, which is uh, www.nationalpopularvote.com. So as Roger said, uh, I'm going to uh, uh, sit down and wait for the uh, kitchen sink to be uh, uh, thrown uh, my way and hopefully to return uh, uh, after a few minutes uh, after we hear from uh, uh, Tara Ross. All right. Well, thank you very much, John. We're now going to hear from Tara Ross, who is the author of Enlightened Democracy, The Case for the Electoral College, which is available, uh, out, uh, for, and uh, both both uh, authors have their books available, and uh, we'll be glad to sign them for you. Um, but I believe yours is for sale, is that right, uh, Tara, being a capitalist? Uh, hers is for sale. Uh, d d John's um, willing to underwrite his um, not being a capitalist, um, and so in any event... Um, Actually, because I'm a capitalist. Oh, <laughs> whatever. Uh, <laughs> In any event, uh, Tara is also the co-author with John C. Smith, Jr. of uh, uh, Under God, George Washington, and the Question of Church and State. Uh, she's a lawyer and a writer. Uh, she focuses on uh, the intersection of law, public policy, and constitutional history. She often appears as a guest on a variety of talk shows nationwide to discuss these matters and regularly addresses civic, university, and legal audiences. Her work has been published in several law reviews and newspapers, including uh, the National Law Journal, USA Today, American Enterprise Online, National Review Online, and so forth. Uh, she uh, is um, currently contributing writer to DallasBlog.com. She's the former editor-in-chief of the Texas Review of Law and Politics and a former associate of Fulbright and, and Jaworski. She obtained her BA from Rice University and her law degree from the University of Texas School of Law. Please welcome Tara Ross. I did, I did work for Fulbright. They may or may not endorse my views on the Electoral College. I don't <laughs> don't purport to say. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for coming um, to hear Dr. Koza and um, me debate this important topic. John and I have swapped emails on this in the past, but we've never had the chance to meet each other, so it's fun to have the opportunity to meet him, and I'm um, glad to be here. So the title of this debate was, Is the Electoral College Obsolete? So I'm going to start off by talking for a little bit about why I think the Electoral College is still a really important tool in our society and an important institution that needs to be protected. But obviously the reason we're here is because there is legislation on the table, as John discussed, that would um, essentially eliminate the Electoral College. So after I'm done discussing the benefits, I'm going to turn to what I think are the special shortcomings of this particular piece of legislation. Um, 
So starting off with the Electoral College, it's an institution that nobody probably really understands, um, and therefore I think it receives less support than it might otherwise. But my experience has shown me that once you take time to study it and to dig into it and to, under and to understand what it is that's going on, why the founders did what they did, what you realize is that this institution is great for a country as diverse and as large as our own. Um, now, you may hear in the news media that the founders created a democracy. You hear the media talk about a democracy or we're spreading democracy around the world or what have you. The founders didn't think they were creating a pure democracy, okay? Now, they wanted to be a self-governing people. They just fought a whole revolution over this. Um, so it's not like they were going to give that up completely. But they also knew from their study of history that if you live in a pure democracy, 51% of the people can rule the other 49% all the time, without question. Okay, so imagine in the wake of 9-11, in fear, anger, panic, whatever, a bare majority can completely tyrannize even very respectably, or respectable minorities, large minority groups. They knew that this is not safe for the rights of the minority. Um, so what they did is they created a constitution that would combine um, several good governmental principles into one document, Democracy is one of them, but so is republicanism, small r. Um, so is federalism, the ability of states to act as states and to act in their state's interest. So we have things like a presidential veto. We have things like a Senate with one state, one vote representation, and, as opposed to the House, which has one person, one vote representation. We have supermajority requirements to amend the Constitution for important reasons. <laughs> and we have the Electoral College. Okay, now the Electoral College, basically what it does is it creates a system where the presidential candidate has to go out and create national coalitions to win. Okay, you can't rack up individual votes in one part of the country, in one big city, and it's not going to do you any good. You have to get concurrent majorities across the nation. Um, you get an individual or a majority of Americans as represented by their states to approve um, your campaign and to vote for you. So presidential candidates must reach out to everybody, not just people who are like themselves, maybe in their home state or um, a special interest group that, that might appeal to them or what have you. Now, John, as soon as he gets up here, is going to tell you this is ridiculous. They focus on swing states, and that's all that matters. Um, my argument to that would be to say... That's, you know, that appears true if you look at one election or a handful of elections in isolation. But if you look at the whole history of state voting, what you discover is there is no such thing as a permanently safe state. There's no such thing as a permanently swing state. It changes all the time. My home state, Texas, used to be Democrat. Republicans um, used to win California, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> um, there are a whole slew of southern states that voted for Bill Clinton that I'm sure wouldn't be caught dead voting for Barack Obama. Um, there is just, these things change. Um, West Virginia has changed recently. Virginia was a swing state to everybody's surprise last time. So, like I said, this is a constant, constantly moving um, thing. And you can't, there is no political party that can ignore one state, even a very safe state, for too long without feeling the ramifications at the polls. Um, there are a couple other, see how I'm doing on time. There are a couple other benefits as well um, to the Electoral College. One is our stable two-party system, which I think is upheld by the Electoral College system with the winner-take-all rule that we have in place. And if you're like me, you're thinking, well, terrific. I hate voting for one of the two parties. I would rather vote for one of the third parties. I know I sometimes would. But you have to look at what the world would look like if you had a different system in place, if it was really easy for third parties to make progress. Um, you would have... 
you'd have some good third-party candidates, but you'd have all the extremist ones too. Um, and they would, they would come to dominate our politics a lot more than they do now. The George Wallaces of the world, which right now have basically no impact on national elections, would have a much larger voice. I think we have a system that is a really good combination. Um, if you are a reasonable third party, think Ross Perot, 1992, you can impact the system. Um, he definitely did. Both parties after that election came back and they, uh, they addressed his, um, his fiscal concerns and came back with different proposals, but their own proposals to try to get those Perot voters back in their camp. 18.9% of the people had voted for Ross Perot. Um, on the other hand, as I mentioned, you know, George Wallace, he's, he doesn't really make an impact. So that is a really good balance for us. The last thing I'll mention real quickly is, and of course this is all discussed in my book, so feel free to go get it if you want a deeper explanation. But the last thing I'll say that the Electoral College does for us right now is um, it, it helps to prevent fraud. Now, I'm not going to stand here and tell you that there is any system in the world that will completely eliminate fraud. It's impossible. Not going to happen. Okay, but what you can do is you can make it as hard as possible. You can make it as hard as possible to commit the fraud in the first place, and you can make it as easy as possible to identify the fraud and to, to find it and to you know, get rid of it or punish it or whatever. Um, the Electoral College does that for us. Okay, think about it. Where it's easy to steal votes, it doesn't matter. I mean, if you're a Democrat in California, hooray for you if you can steal a lot of votes. If the state is that safe, you're not impacting the national outcome. Same thing in Texas with Republicans, okay? By contrast, where it is hard to steal votes is where it tends to matter. And it's hard to steal votes for a couple reasons. One is you have to predict in advance where it's going to matter. Nobody knew that a couple hundred votes in Florida in 2000 was going to make a difference, okay? Um, If you can predict it, then probably so can a whole bunch of lawyers and poll watchers think Ohio 2004 and everybody descended on the place. Were their votes stolen in Ohio? You know, I'm not that naive, maybe, but at least it was as hard as possible and everybody could watch it. And once the problems are known to occur, then you can, you can isolate it to one spot. In Florida in 2000, we only fought the battles there. We didn't have to do it nationwide. And there were other a couple other states that could have been problems um, otherwise. So um, I'm going to switch now to what I think are the dangers of this particular piece of legislation. Um, John explained it briefly. Um, As he said, what they would like people to do is they would like the state legislatures to change the way that they allocate their electors. So right now, most states are winner-take-all. If you win the vote in Texas, you get 34 electors all 34 electors. McCain got them in 2008 because he won the state. Most states, with two exceptions, do that. Um, They would change that. So instead, any state that adopted this legislation would would give their their electors to the winner of the national popular vote. Um, There are two two fundamental flaws of this plan. Um, One is that there is no requirement for a minimum plurality or runoff. And that's a big problem. Um, of course, the reason that they do that is because they cannot force a non-participating state to participate in a runoff. If they have um, Texas, for instance, if they're not participating in this, this plan, they can't make Texas conduct a second election. So NPV's only choice is to allocate their electors to, as they say, the winner of the largest total. Okay, The largest total might be 15%, or it might be 20%, or whatever. There's no requirement. Um, there's, there's no clause that says 
you know, you don't have to do this unless the winning candidate gets at least 40% of the vote or something along those lines. I think that's a big problem. I think that for an organization that is trying to pretend like they want the person with the most votes to win, to say that somebody that 85% of the people voted against could win the presidency is a big problem. The second thing I'll say is um, that uh, the second fundamental flaw is that it leaves the 51 existing state and local laws in place, okay? Right now, we have an election. If you're in Texas or if you're in Massachusetts, um, you have your own set of election codes, okay? Massachusetts voters vote according to the Massachusetts laws. Texas voters vote according to the Texas laws. Doesn't matter because Texas is trying to elect a Texas slate of electors. Massachusetts is trying to elect a Massachusetts slate of electors. So who cares if we have different requirements for how to get on the ballot? Who cares if we have different ideas of how to count a hanging chad? Who cares? Doesn't matter. 51 different sets of elections, 51 different outcomes. What they are going to do is they are going to put a system in place where you have 51 different elections, and then you try to pretend like you can cram all of that into one result. Not going to work, okay? Like I said, Massachusetts, different rules than Texas. So potentially, a person who qualified for the ballot in Texas but didn't even bother to go to Massachusetts, Massachusetts might have to give all of their electors to that person who won a plurality elsewhere, not didn't even bother to campaign in Massachusetts. Um, this could happen again. Go back to what I said earlier about the n- there's no requirement for a minimum plurality. There's no requirement for any of that stuff. So the two-party system is definitely going to be undermined. There will definitely be third-party candidates. There will be five, six, ten presidential candidates in election. There's no reason for there not to be. Um, so these presidential candidates don't have to get on the ballot in every single state. There are other problems. What if the national total is really, really close? Uh, with a couple hundred votes, but um, no individual state statute is triggered. Remember, I said each state has a different set of criteria for this. So there's no national recount. There's no recount at all. Or maybe a couple of states can do this. Maybe the recount statutes were triggered in New York and Missouri, (laughs) but Texas and Massachusetts, just watch. Um, Maybe one state, maybe Florida, was kind of in this optional, you know, like it could conduct the recount and didn't have to, but it's looking at the way Missouri's counting hanging Chad and saying, oh, well, we're definitely jumping into this one. (laughs) And so they do. And you can see how this can create chaos, um, how political this is going to become, um, you know, when you conduct a recount, when you don't, it will be a mess, okay? I like the Electoral College. I would like to keep it. My time is up, I think, <laughs> so I need to sit down. But what I would urge you to consider is that if we are going to get rid of this, then the way to do it is through the constitutional amendment process. That is there for a very important reason. It protects us, and it would enable us to put into place one federal election code instead of trying to deal with the patchwork of state election codes that we have now. Thanks very much. Well, thank you, Tara. Uh, Tara has been uh, testifying at various state legislative hearings around the country, uh, making uh, statements uh, similar to what she said here today uh, 
uh, and others. For example, uh, that the current system uh, ensures that parties must reach out uh, uh, to all the states and they must build a national coalition of voters. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, in 2008, uh, the candidates concentrated two-thirds of their campaign visits and money in just six closely divided battleground states, and a total of 98% of their visits uh, and money went into just 15 states, uh, which you can see on this chart uh, uh, that we were handing out at the uh, uh, door and which is also on page uh, 410 of our book. Uh, 35 states received no campaign visits, uh, no advertising, no organizing, no money. Uh, in fact, the candidates don't even poll in those states uh, for the simple reason that the issues of concern to the voters of, the, of the 35 spectator states are simply not relevant if you're trying to win the White House, or for that matter, if you're in the White House thinking about running for re-election. Uh, so uh, uh, if you want to look at a presidential campaign, here it is on one page, and I ask you, uh, is this reaching out to all the states? Is this building a national coalition? Uh, White House uh, Press Secretary Ari Fleischer said it very well. Uh, if people don't like it, they can move from a safe state to a swing state. Uh, you can sell your house. You can quit your job. You can take your kids out of school. You can change your church. Uh, just to make your vote uh, for president count. <clears throat> Tara mentions that uh, the national popular vote bill uh, does not require an absolute majority in order to win. Well, there's no state law now that requires that you have an absolute majority to win the state's electoral votes, and there's nothing in any law that says you have to have a majority, an absolute majority of the national popular vote to win the presidency now as evidenced by presidents such as Lincoln, Wilson, uh, Truman, Kennedy, Nixon, uh, and Clinton. So uh, uh, what we have is a situation that's equivalent under both systems. She says the popular vote uh, uh, in her testimony uh, two weeks ago uh, uh, in Delaware would lead to a proliferation of candidates, a fracturing of the electorate, regional candidates, extremist candidates, and candidates that could be elected with only 15% of the vote, as she just said, with 85% of the voters uh, having voted for someone else. Well, if the electoral college type of arrangement is so essential to avoid this chamber of horrors that Tara is describing, we should see some evidence of these horrible things happening in elections that don't use the electoral college. Well, the facts are, in the last 60 years, in 905 governor's elections uh, conducted uh, without the Electoral College under the general principle that the candidate who gets the most votes wins the office, 90% uh, of the winners had over half the vote. Only 1% of, of the winners uh, were under 40% and none were under 35. <clears throat> so there's simply no such thing as a 15% winner of an office in ordinary elections where the, the winner is the candidate who, who, who gets the most votes. As for these regional candidates, uh, when was the last time you saw the Maryland Eastern Shore Party uh, running against the Baltimore Party, running against the D.C. Suburbs Party uh, for a statewide office in Maryland? Uh, it simply doesn't happen because the dynamics of the general rule of American elections, which is the candidate who gets the most votes, wins. 
The dynamics of, of that system forces candidates to truly build uh, uh, big coalitions of all their voters, not a system that causes them to ignore uh, two-thirds of the voters. Uh, so the simple fact is the existing system, as used in every other election, uh, prevents 15 percent winners, regional candidates, extremist candidates, proliferation of candidates, fracturing of the electorate. Uh, we simply do not have to, as a country, disenfranchise two-thirds of the voters and put up with second-place uh, uh, candidates in the White House in order to, uh, to avoid this entirely hypothetical uh, uh, parade of horribles. <clears throat> uh, Tara likes to say that uh, the most likely a consequence of a change to direct election would be the breakdown of the two-party system. Well, in 1789, only two states elected governors. Uh, since then, all the states have adopted that. And after over 5,000 governors' election in 200 years, uh, the two-party system has yet to break down. Indeed, if anything is a threat to the two-party system, it's the current state-by-state winner-take-all system. In the 16 elections since World War II, six of them have been decided uh, by third-party candidates. 1948, uh, 1968 with George Wallace, 1980 with John Anderson, 92 and 96 with Perot, uh, and 2000. <clears throat> the reason why the current system performs so badly in this regard is that every presidential election is really 51 separate elections, giving third parties uh, the attractive possibility of winning certain states regionally, as Strom Thurmond uh, did in 48 and George Wallace did in 68, or in some other way, <coughs> or flipping electoral votes uh, uh, from state to state. Uh, Tara mentions that uh, we have logistical problems with our bill because the states have different ballot qualifications. Well, differences in election laws are the inherent consequence of our federalist system that gives states control of elections. As a practical matter, Perot was on the ballot in all 50 states, uh, and even Ralph Nader got on the ballot in, in 48 states. But the important principle here is there's nothing incompatible about between state control of elections and a national popular vote. In 1969, <coughs> the U.S. House of Representatives approved a constitutional amendment for a direct popular vote by a 338 to 70 margin. That amendment left the states in control of elections. So we just heard Tara say that there's no way this would work, <clears throat> but somehow 338 members of the U.S. House, along with President Nixon, Ford, George W. Bush, Carter, and presidential candidates such as Bob Dole and Walter Mondale, they all thought that that amendment was just fine, that there were no unworkable inconsistencies between our existing good federalist system of state control of elections and the idea of adding up all the votes nationwide to see uh, who should become president. So the mainstream position is simply that we can have a national popular vote and maintain state control of elections. And that's why the subtitle of our book is, <coughs> excuse me, a state-based plan to elect the president by a national popular vote. How many people in this room think it's more important 
to maintain state control of election or to worry about whether a 1% candidate is on the ballot in 48 as opposed to 50 states. Uh, I certainly think state control uh, is the more important value, um, and uh, uh, so did those presidents I mentioned and uh, the overwhelming majority of Congress. <clears throat> Uh, Tara has complained uh, in her written testimony and here this morning uh, that recounts would not be governed by one national standard. Yet in her book, she talks about the merits of federalism and the fact that <coughs> the, federal assist <coughs> the federalist system should be uh, preserved and, and upheld. Well, which is it? Are you for federalism or are you against federalism? Uh, uniform national standards implies something very different uh, from federalism, and I think the federal, the genius of the federalist system is that not that every state is virtuous or brilliant, but that no one political party ever gets control of all the states and hence can write the election rules uh, in its way. If you had uniform national rules, uh, you would have uh, the possibility, which the founders did not want, of a sitting president being able to change the rules for his own re-election. And that's why <clears throat> Article 2 gives the exclusive power to control presidential elections uh, to, the state, to the states rather than, uh, than to Congress. <clears throat> Tara makes the point that uh, the Electoral College typically produces quick and undisputed results. Well, that's not quite true. There have been five litigated state counts in our nation's 56 presidential elections, five out of 56. <clears throat> Compare that frequency to the frequency of a recount in ordinary elections where the winner is the candidate who gets the most votes. Uh, the frequency is less than one in 300. So in a national popular vote, there would be one pool of votes. Yes, it would be subject to a recount one in 300 times, which in the context of a presidential election means once in 1,200 years. But contrast that with the five problems that we've had, five litigated counts, in a mere 56 elections. And the reason that's true is the same as the problem with the uh, uh, third, third parties. Every presidential right now election is 51 separate elections, and therefore there's 51 opportunities uh, for a count to uh, uh, cause a problem. <clears throat> she says that problems are helpfully isolated to specific states when they occur. Well, the simple fact is the current system doesn't helpfully isolate problems. It creates problems when there were no problems. Uh, in the, all three of the uh, uh, most recent uh, uh, divergent elections between the Electoral College and the popular vote, uh, the winner of the national popular vote was ahead by a, a substantial margin, uh, uh, well beyond uh, the range of recounts. Uh, recounts typically change, by the way, 274 votes uh, on average and 90% of them uh, change absolutely nothing because the candidate who is ahead uh, typically remains ahead. We've heard about different recount triggers, uh, but she failed to mention that automatic recounts are not the normal way of getting recounts. In fact, only 21 states have these automatic recount laws. The more normal way is that the candidate who's unhappy uh, asks for a recount. In 40-some states, uh, they have to pay uh, for that right. Uh, subject possibly to a refund, uh, 
but the fact is uh, getting refunds does not depend on existing uh, automatic recount laws, which obviously were not written with this proposal in mind, although, of course, uh, uh, they, they could be re rewritten uh, uh, at any time. <clears throat> we'll talk about fraud, that it's so difficult to predict uh, where uh, uh, fraud will matter. Well, I'll give you a prediction. It's in the closely divided battleground states. How about Florida and Ohio? Uh, in fact, we would be better off if uh, whatever problems there are uh, were not so isolated uh, in particular places. <clears throat> well, let me just say in summary, uh, our plan is based on uh, the constitutional idea that the states should maintain uh, their power and control over all elections, uh, and certainly presidential elections. And uh, that plan uh, has, has been endorsed by the overwhelming majority of members of Congress when they last voted on it, as well as uh, numerous very practical politicians uh, who were looking out for, the, for their own interest. And the fact is there is nothing incompatible about federalism and a national popular vote. On the other hand, there's the benefits that we would have a truly national election in which citizens of Maryland, some of whom may be in the room, uh, their vote may actually matter. Presidential candidates might actually care uh, what issues are of concern to Maryland, or for that matter, the District of Columbia, another safe state. <clears throat> and as Virginia, yes, indeed, it was a battleground in 2008. But when I went back and looked through the almanac, uh, that was the first time in two since the Constitution when Virginia was a battleground state. So if having the right to vote once every 50 years in your life or every 200 years, if you happen to be uh, have long, a lot of longevity. Uh, that's not what I call fairness. Uh, people's votes should matter in every single election in every state, and everybody's vote should matter in picking the most important position in the world. Thank you very much. Okay, I'll hit these in order. Um, do they have to build national coalitions? John says, no. I say yes. And if you give a couple of isolated examples, that doesn't contradict it. Like I said, this changes all the time. Um, the, if, I'll, I'll give you another example, actually, of a period when um, the votes were, were really closely divided and maybe the division between red and blue states seems as bad as it does right now because I know people are very concerned about that. If you looked in the years after the Civil War, there was a really stark divide between North and South. Okay? Um, Democrats had all these votes in the South. Republicans held all these votes in the North and the West. Democrats could not win an election unless they reached out to at least one state that was not friendly territory. Republicans um, could, but barely. <laughs> so they were probably kind of nervous about it. What happened, we had a couple of election years where the, the results did look a lot alike with this division between North and South for a while. But I would argue the Electoral College forced both political parties to reach out to change their strategy, and to learn about people who were not like themselves. Basically, to quit doing the terrible job of building national coalitions that they were doing in those late 1800 years, and to start doing a better job. Um, <coughs> excuse me. 
Um, he, John mentions other things about swing states. I would urge you to go to a website, saveourstates.com. There is a, um, the most recent post has a list, actually, of what the swing states were for each year, each presidential election year in the past several decades. And what you will see is it changes all the time. This is just because you have a couple of election years in which it appears to be kind of static. It's not permanently so. In the long run, and what we want is a presidential election system that is healthy for us in the long run, not at one moment, in one time, in one election year for one person. You want a system that is healthy overall. And in the long run, the Electoral College enables us to to be healthy and to have national coalitions and to have presidential candidates that will work um, across a variety of people. Um, John mentions that we don't need a majority of anything now. Well, that's not entirely true. <laughs> I would say no, MPV does not require a majority of anything. The, with our system now, we do have to have a, a majority of states, um, period, or you can't win. And that's the way it is. Um, there's someone in New York who's done, I think, a great job of explaining the dynamic that we have in our current electoral college system, Judith Best, who's a professor. And she talks about... Basically, the system we have is a system in which, you know what, probably nobody's getting their first choice candidate. Nobody is, I mean, but look at America, right? 51% of the people will never in a million years agree on one person. Not going to happen. We are too independent. We are too, we like to do our own thing. That's who we are. We're Americans. Not going to all agree. Um, so if you open the field up like that, you will have a system that divides and fractures into multiple parties. What we have now is a system that forces us to come together. Probably a lot of people are not getting their first choice candidate. I usually don't. <laughs> but we all get a good second choice candidate as represented by the majority of our states. It's a good system for a country as diverse as our own. We are too big, too diverse to do it any other way. Um, let's see. John asked me, um, do I want one uniform national system or not? Well, no, I don't. I want to keep the Electoral College. But my point is just, look, don't try to have your cake and eat it too, okay? Either you're going to be a federalist system and do it that way and have the Electoral College and have the benefits of the Electoral College, or if you insist on dumping it, then let's dump it through a constitutional amendment so that we can at least have one coherent set of election laws. Okay, this is not a small matter. This, I think, is actually the absolute worst problem with this plan, that Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives, everybody should be on board with this, okay? This is 51 different sets of election laws governing one election. Confusion will happen. Chaos will happen. Um, you know, I, I don't really know why it matters if the recounts are mandatory or triggered or requested or whatever. The point is that in different states, there's different margins um, between the candidates that have to be achieved, or there's different things that trigger it. Or you know, take the 2008 election. Barack Obama won landslides in some states, right, like California or New York. So those states, if the election had been close, would not have been able to participate in a recount, no matter what. I mean, there's nothing they could have done about it. It's just, it doesn't make any sense to me um, to have 51 sets of laws governing one situation. Not going to work. It's just not going to work. Um, but yes, I do want to, I do not want one uniform national system. My answer is most emphatically no. Um, he, John mentions that we would have recounts one in 300 times with his system in place. Um, I think that's funny. <laughs> Sorry. 
Um, the, the former FEC chairman, Brad Smith, actually wrote a paper about this, and he did an analysis, and he concluded that since the late 1800s, we probably would have had six recounts based purely on the actual uh, or sorry, six you know just closely contested elections that could have resulted in recounts based purely on the popular votes that we see today and the current recount statutes that exist. What you know typical margins are that would trigger a recount. He said six, six elections since the last uh, since the late 1800s. That's a lot. Um, I would also note, and I I don't always I've got the exact numbers in my book. I don't remember them off the top of my head, but the popular vote total is almost always closer, than, or at least more, more typically closer, than the Electoral College vote. The Electoral College vote usually has really wide margins of victory. Um, the popular vote totals tend to be a lot closer as a general matter. Um, you, just, you don't remember it. You don't think about it. It doesn't matter because the Electoral College vote is, um, is so certain. But it's there. I wish I could remember the numbers. I'm sorry, I can't. They are in my book. Um, I think also, if you want a free site, <laughs> they're on a, a debate I did on opposingviews.com. Pretty sure I put it in there. Um, the last thing I will say is um, John disputes that the two-party system will fall apart, and he cites all sorts of governor's races and that sort of stuff. Those examples all occurred in the presence of a two-party system. So to me, you know, who knows? Who knows if that's the way it'll work out? To me, the best thing to do if you're going to try to figure out what is going to happen without the Electoral College. I think 1992 is a great example. Okay, Ross Perot, like I said, got 18.9% of the vote. Clinton had, I think, about 43. George Bush had whatever's left over, high 30s. And um, that, that occurred with the Electoral College system in place, okay? With every disincentive in the world, with people telling me, I'm sure they told some of you, don't vote for Ross Perot, it's a wasted vote. You should be voting for Clinton or you should be voting for Bush. Um, despite that... Ross Perot got 18.9% of the vote. Now take away the Electoral College. Take away all those comments. You don't want to waste your vote. Do you think Ross Perot gets stopped at 18.9% of the vote? No. Do you think that once he manages to succeed like that, other people are going to jump in the next time? Yeah. Definitely. Like I said, Americans are an independent people. We like to do our own thing. We like to vote for our own person. Given the opportunity, we will split our vote across five, six, or ten presidential candidates. There's no doubt in my mind. Um, Again, I would urge us to keep the Electoral College system, and I will be happy to take questions later. Good job. All right. Uh, would you want to do a quick response, each of you, uh, to what's been said so far? <clears throat> from, from the... Uh, just a quick response. Uh, well, I'd just like to correct a couple of errors. There, there's no requirement now that you get a majority of the states in order to be elected president. Uh, perhaps that was a misstatement I'm, I'm accidentally made. Yeah, uh, it is true you have to get a majority of the electoral votes, and the national popular vote plan guarantees a majority of the electoral votes uh, to the candidate uh, uh, who's the winner uh, uh, nationwide. Uh, so both plans, in fact, uh, guarantee a majority. Of, uh, well, our plan guarantees a majority of the electoral votes, uh, and, some, and most of the time, that's ha what's happened in the real uh, case. In terms of recounts, uh, you, you mentioned California. California doesn't even have an automatic recount law. In fact, 60% uh, of the states do not. Automatic recounts are cosmetic devices that basically offer a government-paid recount when there's really no problem. Uh, and Brad Smith's analysis is based on the uh, 
percentages used to trigger these automatic recounts in the small number of states that have them. The historical data uh, compiled by uh, Rob Ritchie, uh, who's uh, here in the audience and one of the co-authors of uh, our, our book, uh, uh, they've studied what actually happens in real recounts, in real situations, studying 7,645 election, statewide elections in the last 25 years. And that's where the one in 339 is the actual number. One in 339 is the actual probability of a recount in the real world with real candidates looking hard at the numbers and deciding whether whether they want to pursue a recount. Uh, thank you very much. Okay. Tara, would you like to? I think the point is just at the end of the day, you can't conduct one election with 51 sets of rules in place. Not going not gonna to work. Yeah. Uh, well, I guess President Nixon, Ford, Carter, and George Herbert Walker Bush and 339 members of the House uh, would disagree with that. Well, it uh, depends how you rate those people. Um, in any event, let's now open it up to the audience for uh, questions and uh, wait till the microphone gets to you. Identify yourself and any affiliation you may have and to whom your question is directed. Let's start with this fellow right over here. Put his hand up first. All right. Hi, my name is William Shell. I work with uh, MainStreetInsider.org. And my question uh, goes to both panelists, I guess, and pertains to the two-party system. And if you're familiar with Duverger's law that says uh, a two-party system actually forms by election rules, P basically plurality winner-takes-all, first-past-the-post elections will incentivize two-party two systems where... Uh, what proportional representation actually encourages multi-party systems. So my question is to both of you, if you, are you familiar with that law, and do you think that law in itself is what encourages two-party systems and not necessarily the Electoral College? Uh, well, I'll answer it. I, I thought that was pretty much what I was saying, was that we have actual evidence from the real world that in elections where the winner is the candidate who gets the most votes, uh, you have the formation of these broad coalitions, which we call two parties, and that generally leads to two, not always, uh, and that's what happens in the real world. Indeed, if we had a proportional system, uh, as some countries do, you would have a, uh, 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 a multiplicity of parties, but I think it is the first-past-the-post rule, uh, the candidate who gets the most votes, that sustains the basic system that we have in the United States. Uh, and that's why none of these horrors like 15% winners and extremist candidates and regional candidates uh, has any bearing on, on what happens in the real world. Um, I'm not familiar with the law that you cited. I will just say that I think, um, again, I think the examples that have been cited in America are things that have all occurred in the presence of a two-party system. Um, do I think that if we get rid of the Electoral College, the next day you're going to wake up and there's no more two-party system? No. But I do think it will it will peter away over time. And um, I do think, um, again, to cite Judith Best again, but she talks about how any time you introduce a second chance to vote, like a kind of this mentality, oh, you know, I'll vote for Ross Perot. I don't really think he's going to win, but it doesn't matter because then I can vote for Bush the next time. Like any time you introduce that kind of mentality into a, an election, you are going to guarantee the rise of third-party candidates. There's, 
you know, there's, there's no way you're not going to. That's just the nature of how we are. Um, like I said, I think we're all independent souls that like to do our own thing. And given the opportunity to do so, we will. Uh, this gentleman way in the back there. Thank you, and thank you for two very interesting uh, presentations. Uh, my name is Jerry Lipson. I'm with the Alexandria Republican City Committee. And my question has to do with the third-party candidacy. Uh, let's say that uh, there had been an NPV system in place in 1992. Uh, it's entirely, and as I recollect, uh, Clinton's percentage, 43%, was among the lowest, I think, of a winning candidate uh, who won the presidency. Suppose you had a situation where, let's say, the outcomes were more evenly divided, and the winning presidential candidate won with, let's say, 35%. Uh, now, you, uh, Mr. Koza said that the, under your system, uh, the winner was guaranteed, uh, you know, the winner of the, of the electoral votes. Uh, as I understand it, uh, right now, uh, presidency is required to have the majority of the electoral college votes, not simply a plurality. That being the case, what do you do in a situation where, let's say, you have uh, three candidates, the winning candidate is 35%, but he does. He has a plurality, but uh, but maybe only of the electoral college vote. Have you sort of looked at that kind of a situation? And uh, what would you do about it when you have sixty-five percent of the people voting for, you know, no on the winning candidate? Thank you. <clears throat> well, first of all, our comp our bill only goes into effect when it's enacted by states possessing a majority of the electoral votes. So our compact will always guarantee. Uh, a majority of the electoral votes uh, to the candidate who gets the most votes. Uh, in terms of your 35 percent example, that is indeed the lowest percentage uh, in the uh, last 60 years in 905 governor's elections. And by the way, the statistics are very similar for Senate elections and so forth. Uh, and if indeed you had three almost equally divided candidates, uh, uh, indeed if Perot had done better, uh, and pulled up to 35 percent, you would have a close three-way election. But that simply is not the history of what actually happens in the United States because we have a first-past-the-post system. I think it's a great example because it shows how close we are to a world in which somebody with a relatively small plurality can be in the White House with no further ado. And I don't think anybody here wants that. Um, I, I, look, I want the Electoral College, don't, so don't, anything I say, just don't make, put that in question, but if we're going to get rid of it, my goodness, do a constitutional amendment, so again, we can at least have a runoff system or something, I'm, that doesn't really cure the problem in my mind, because... Well, is the you know, idea but, that under the Electoral College, you, in a situation like the questioner raises, you could have a majority of the states elect a president who may not have gotten a majority, or who may not have gotten the the highest plurality of the votes. Is that the idea? In other words, you, you, you listed where you, you gave a situation where the president got only a plurality of the votes. And a plurality of the, and a, and and a plurality of, of the electoral college. Well, with his plan, he's right. That wouldn't happen. Um, he's trying to say that that is 
oh, yeah, we still get a majority that way. Well, it's a farce. <laughs> like, no offense to anybody, but it's a farce. It's just, it's a ruse. It's, it's, yeah, whatever. But the electoral college system is gone. So you don't have to get, it's not functioning. It is something that's going to be in place in name only. What we will have in all effect, a practical effect is a direct popular election system. That's what they want. That's why they're doing this. So, what I'm saying is that the election is better. Um, yes, even if you do have somebody win by plurality like Bill Clinton did, at least Bill Clinton had to get concurrent majorities um, across the country to build a, at least a better coalition than anybody else did. There are some years where nobody gets a great coalition, but everybody has to work hard to achieve it. They do better the next time. These are the incentives that are in place in our current system. Uh, well, we're talking about a situation where under the current system – one out of 14 elections, the person who becomes president doesn't even have the most votes. So uh, uh, it seems to me your question is uh, uh, rather uh, hair-splitting. But she keeps repeating uh, coalitions. Look at this chart. 35 states get absolutely no attention. Look at the Washington Post article about where uh, our current president has visited uh, since his inauguration in the same states he campaigned in. No offense to our current president. The previous one did the same thing. Uh, the reality is that the election for a president excludes two-thirds of the country, and the governing process similarly excludes it because as soon as you're president, you're running for re-election. Uh, John Samples, who wrote a study for Cato two years ago, which is available outside, a study on the National Popular Vote Plan. Hi, thank you, Roger. Uh, and hello again to John and uh, Tara. Um, I wanted to direct my question to John one, uh, uh, on a couple of issues. One is uh, your book is entitled uh, Every Vote Equal, but you've put no emphasis today, and indeed the, your group seems to, to me at least to put, uh, uh, at first put a lot of emphasis on the equality of votes among uh, the electorate that would be achieved by your proposal. Uh, but not so much uh, now. It's the ignored voter you're concerned about. I'm wondering why that's so, and I'm wondering if it's perhaps because you think uh, that uh, the uh, emphasis on the equality of votes won't get you where you need to go politically. And to follow up on that question with a second one, um, on this question of presidential visits and attention, there's in fact been a very good study done uh, and published last year in the American uh, Economic Review, of all places, which look backwards in time about presidential visits and then ask the question, if we went to a direct election, such as you're proposing in one way, uh, how would individual states do for moving from direct elect, uh, excuse me, moving to a direct majority election from the current system? What, what states would benefit? What states would lose out? What states would be about the same? And the author of this, an economist, uh, looked backwards with a good data set and projected it forward into the future in much the same way that uh, Ms. Ross uh, just mentioned in her comments. And what he found was that about roughly 40% of the states would have more presidential attention during the campaign in the future. About 40% or just slightly less would have less attention. And about 20% of the states would uh, be about where they are today. So by your criteria of attention uh, 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 from presidential candidates, the best study we have suggests that about 60% of the states would either be harmed or would be indifferent 
from uh, about moving from the current system to a direct election system. And I'm wondering, uh, doesn't that suggest that, in fact, politically, uh, the electoral college system we have is quite stable, and by your criteria of uh, attention from candidates, in fact, you don't have a majority for moving away from the status quo? Thanks. Well, uh, uh, yes, uh, the whole purpose of this is to make every vote equal uh, in every state uh, and every election. That's not only the title of our book, but it's the obvious consequence of putting everyone's vote across the United States into one pool and counting every vote uh, equally. So uh, if I misspoke in any way this morning, uh, I apologize, John. Uh, in terms of this economic study, uh, I am not familiar with it. Uh, but listening to it, uh, that's not the way real candidates campaign. Uh, uh, candidates, uh, when they run for U.S. Senate or governor in a state where every vote is equal, uh, they campaign over the whole state. Uh, it would be inconceivable in a state, say, with uh, 10 congressional districts <clears throat> for a candidate for Senate or governor or anything uh, to campaign in just two or three of the congressional districts and ignore the others which is the direct analogy now of two-thirds of the states being ignored. Uh, candidates generally allocate their time and their money uh, across, as a starting point, ac across, say, all ten congressional districts, adjusting it to whatever the special situations are where they think that they can perhaps draw more votes from their base or chip away some votes from an opponent. But uh, look, look at real statewide campaigns uh, they're nothing like uh, what you just described uh, in this economist's report. <clears throat> I would argue, by the way, there's a big difference between a governor's race. States are a lot smaller than America. <laughs> there are 50 states in the United States of America. Um, also, there's, got, there's a difference between a gubernatorial race in, I don't know, Massachusetts, where there's less ground to cover, and Texas, where I live. Do you think the governor is out there campaigning in Earth, Texas? Did you know there was an Earth, Texas? Or Paris, Texas? Did you know about that either? No. I, yes, candidates have to allocate their time and resources. It's the nature of the beast, and it gets worse when you extend from a state to the whole country. And that's why I go back to this is a unique system and one that we are blessed to have because of the diversity and because of the vastness of our country. It is so large, and this system serves us really well. Dean? No, no. Uh, well, okay. Let this no. Let this gentleman. Then we'll go to Dean Reuter right after. That. A very quick observation, then a question. Uh, it seems to me it may be a myth that there has necessarily been a disparity between popular and electoral votes. Because if if we had a popular system, the campaigns would be different. In in New York, in in two thousand, for example. Uh, Lazio got uh, 44 percent of the vote running against Clinton. Uh, Bush got 34 percent. If, if Bush had campaigned in, in uh, New York alone, maybe New York and California would have more than made up the apparent 500,000 uh, vote difference. So we don't know. Uh, but beyond that, the one thing that strikes me about all this is that under your system, the only and the most important election we would ever conduct in the United States would not have a viable recount system. 
I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, because you, you mentioned automatic recount statutes in states, but states that don't have automatic recounts allow for recounts at, at the uh, candidate's expense if they're not within an automatic uh, threshold. So it does seem to me that your system, well, first of all, it will only happen in a very close, well, the only times there will be any effective difference between your system and the current system is a close election, because otherwise they'd be the same. So we need to assume that yours is an effective system, an outcome-determining system, only if there's a close national vote. And then, alone among the, the elections I can think of, there would be no recount system. And I guess the question is, is that right or wrong? Well, there is a recount system in, in almost every state, but it's also true uh, there are a couple states where there is no recount now. If, if, if the 537 vote margin that occurred in Florida in 2000 happened to have occurred in Mississippi, which does not have any recount statute, then the uh, original first count in Mississippi would have been uh, the last count, as indeed is what happened in Florida in practice uh, since the uh, recount was truncated. Uh, so uh, we have a state-based system. Uh, it is true right now that there are a couple states where uh, you can't get recounts. In the vast majority of the states, uh, in the high 40s, uh, you can. And, uh, uh, again, a key point is uh, five litigated state counts in only 56 elections compared with an actual rate of recounts, which is one in 300, which translates into, yes, there will be a recount under a national popular vote, approximately once in 1,200 years. Uh, so, uh, and by the way, the states obviously uh, are free to uh, uh, change their, their recount laws and, and perhaps would, but uh, uh, it's not like we're not having a count. If, if Mississippi is the, uh, uh, the state where the national vote hinges as it did in Florida in 2000, then the first count is the last count and the only count. Dean um, Reuter. Thank you. A couple of points for Dr. Koza. Uh, identify yourself, Dean. I'm Dean Reuter with the Federalist Society. Uh, thanks for being here, of course, especially on short notice. You, you seem to build a lot of your argument on the premise. You've referred to them as ignored states or spectator states. And I'm not sure I agree with that premise, and you can tell me why I'm wrong. But uh, California, for example, in the last election, why isn't it equally valid to say that uh, the Democratic Party is just very adept at recognizing a coalition that already exists, and they put forward a candidate, Barack Obama. Uh, Barack Obama. Texas, likewise, puts forward uh, John McCain. Uh, so those people aren't spectators. Their views are being represented in the selection of the candidates themselves. Secondly, um, your proposal seems very ambitious and goes really to the core of probably the most important election in the country. Uh, making so many fundamental changes, would you predict a lot of uh, new litigation uh, if your proposal is implemented? There are a lot of attorneys on the sidelines. The stakes are extremely high. Uh, what's to prevent uh, everything from ending up in the courts? Well, everything ends up in the courts now, of course. Uh, um, uh, I, I don't uh, know what you'd litigate about. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, you're not going to litigate about the constitutionality of the national popular vote plan. Uh, even our opponents uh, concede it's constitutional. Uh, 
if you had a very close election, you'd probably have a Florida-like uh, dispute between the candidate who just barely lost and was unhappy and the candidate who was slightly ahead and, and very happy with the results. Uh, I agree with you. It's a, it is an important issue. Uh, it's important because uh, two-thirds of the states are ignored. You can say that California and Texas voters are represented uh, in the sense that uh, even though they get uh, no polling and uh, uh, presidential candidates uh, uh, don't visit or, or take their views into account uh, because they've already got them in the bag. Uh, but the fact is there's a lot of issues that uh, – there's a lot of issue distortion. Why did the free trade president, George W. Bush, uh, come out for steel quotas as soon as he came into office? Uh, principle? Hardly. It's Ohio and Pennsylvania is the reason. Uh, and you can go through a whole series of policy distortions uh, in this country that come from the fact that uh, the White House sees the world uh, through the prism of the battleground states. Uh, and open your newspaper. Obama was in Missouri uh, uh, yesterday. He's been there five times since the election. Uh, Missouri got 20 of the 300 uh, post-convention visits by candidates, and it's one of the top six battleground states that together got two-thirds of the attention. There will be lots of lawsuits. <laughs> um, and no, there are not lawsuits about our presidential election process all the time right now. There was there was a lawsuit in 2000 that was rare. There will be a lawsuit filed when this, if and when this passes about whether they need congressional approval for their compact. They say they don't. We say yes, they definitely do. Um, there'll be a, I'm waiting for their lawsuit that says the governor's veto in California is invalid. Um, they're probably waiting to see how the governor's election comes out first, and hope, they're hoping to do it without a lawsuit. But there will be a lawsuit about that. There will be a lawsuit about the constitutionality of this. Um, I, what I have conceded is that, at best, it's a loophole. Um, you know, basically, the framers could not foresee that state legislators would abandon their state's interests so quickly. And so it didn't occurred to them to expressly prohibit state legislators from doing so. Um, but are we really going to say that legislators can allocate their electors to anybody? Anybody. Um, so can Florida say, you know, Fidel Castro is going to decide for us from now on? Or can we say, can New York say, you know, the United Nations, can, they can get our votes. We like that. We like the United Nations. They're located in New York City, right? Are we sure that electors can be allocated any way they want to? Um, there will be lawsuits about all of these things. So, well, let me quickly say, uh, uh, nobody has stepped forward in the four years since we've been business with uh, a sentence that says the National Popular Vote Bill is unconstitutional because it violates, and then reads a section of the Constitution. Uh, there will not be such a lawsuit. There is no credible person who has uh, advanced that premise. Uh, yes, there probably will be a dispute about whether congressional uh, a consent is required, and the courts will decide it. And if it's required, it's required. Uh, it's that simple. Uh, but the uh, courts uh, on that question uh, ruled in 1893 that uh, interstate compacts that do not threaten federal supremacy uh, do not require congressional consent. And the court in 78, uh, as part of the Rehnquist movement towards increasing state power and and towards federalism, strengthened that ruling. So the prevailing law at the moment is uh, U.S. Steel versus Multi-State Tax uh, Commission, uh, and it plainly says, and you can read it, uh, uh, no congressional consent is required uh, unless federal supremacy is threatened. 
read McPherson versus Blacker, which, or, uh, which is the controlling case on the Electoral College, plenary power exclusively belongs to the state. How can an exclusive state power threaten uh, federal supremacy? And no, Tara, I do not think it was an accident that the Founding Fathers gave the state legislatures exclusive and plenary power to award electoral votes. They did so for a very good reason. They did not want recreation of a monarchy and a self-perpetuating president. They did not want a George W. Bush uh, in 2003 uh, with a Republican Congress to be able to change the election laws nationwide uh, in favor of his reelection any more than they wanted a, a Barack Obama and a democratically controlled Congress to be able to manipulate the election uh, laws for the 2012 election. Uh, they gave it to the states for good reason. Uh, if the Electoral College is so good, why haven't we seen a movement to install something similar to elect uh, state governors? Uh, wouldn't it have all the same benefits uh, uh, that uh, Tara claims to see in the current system? Uh, I've detailed my legal arguments in a white paper that's on the Federal Society website right now. Um, right in the back there, please. Uh, Sean Parnell with the Center for Competitive Politics. Uh, I have a question for you, actually two questions for you, Dr. Koza. Uh, one, you talk about policy distortions, and, and I think you're right in terms of the, the steel tariffs in Pennsylvania and Ohio. I'm just wondering, though, why we wouldn't expect to see the same thing with policy distortion aimed instead at large organized constituencies. For, so, for example, the National Rifle Association, the AFL-CIO, other groups that potentially can deliver large numbers of raw votes to the uh, to the voting booth, since that would be what is important now under the um, the scheme that you outlined. My second question is: uh, you you focus a lot on the bystander states, these 35 states that get very little attention. I'm wondering why we wouldn't simply expect to see candidates focusing largely on urban and possibly suburban areas and completely ignore the rural areas as as Ross pointed out, it, campaigning is a very time-consuming process. There's only so many resources and so much time that a candidate has. Why would we expect Barack Obama to appear in Perry, Iowa, for example? Um, you know, small towns, rural areas, why would we, wouldn't we expect them to be completely ignored under the national popular vote? Uh, well, the simple answer is uh, every vote is equal. Uh, talk to your congressman. Uh, ask them if they ignore any part of their district uh, simply because it's a, a small town or a, a small neighborhood. Uh, uh, people who actually run for office pay attention uh, to the entire electorate. Uh, and uh, 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 that's how they campaign. That's how they obtain a majority. Uh, and if a given candidate doesn't go to Perry, Iowa, or whatever county uh, uh, happens to en encompass it, uh, his opponent will. So uh, that's how elections are run. Every vote is equal. Uh, look, look how the presidential campaign was conducted inside Ohio. Uh, you didn't see uh, the candidate. You didn't see Barack Obama only in Cleveland uh, and Toledo. You saw him all over all 18 congressional districts because every single vote in Ohio, uh, no matter where it was located, uh, was just as good as any other. <clears throat> Okay, um, this gentleman right over here. Thanks. Um, 
I just wanted to go back to uh, it's Rob Ritchie with Fair Vote, um, and we've done some research into to this issue, and we are the backers of the plan. But uh, 68 election and 92 election. So 68 was George Wallace, and we, we heard from Tara that you know, George Wallace didn't really have an impact because of the Electoral College. He actually won several states, and if California had flipped and Nixon won it by less than 2%, then we actually would have had no majority in the Electoral College. And I assume you can sort of explain and defend what happens next, which is that the House then picks the president, the Senate picks the vice president. Wallace before then gets to negotiate with his electors, mm -hmm. with the candidates, and perhaps try to get one to agree to his segregationist views. That would never happen with a national popular vote plan, but it could happen with the current system. So I wouldn't say that he was minimized by the current system. And then you look at 92. I don't think there's any evidence that Ross Perot lost votes in the popular vote because of the Electoral College. It was because he was at 19% and people didn't think he could win. If he was at 35%, under the current system, he would have won. Under the current Electoral College system, he would have won a majority Electoral College and won. That um, so, that, so that if Ross Perot had actually elevated to the place that he could win in the national popular vote, mm -hmm. he also would have won in the current electoral college system. So the current, and, and if you look at the results in 92, in the 50 states, one state was won with a majority of the vote, Arkansas. 49 states, it was a plurality. So that it wasn't that majorities in states were electing electors the majority of voters in 49 states opposed the person who won that state's electors. So again, the current system is not keeping that from happening. Um, and then so that final point about the Duverger's law, which is a good law to know, because it actually governs plurality elections all around the, the world and is, 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 is very clearly shows that plurality leads to a two-party choice, which is why what happens in governor's races happens. Um, you know, that, that makes it very unlikely that we're going to see these scenarios. And, of course, hey, anything can happen, but it could happen under the current system, too. So you just want me to comment? And George Wallace, he set out on that campaign with the explicit purpose of trying to force the, the election in the House, and he failed. Um, there are lots of third-party candidates that have – not lots, actually. There are several third-party candidates that have tried and failed to buck the system, um, Sure, you've read my book. I'm sure you know the ones I cite. Teddy Roosevelt tried really hard. If anybody was possibly going to be able to do it, you would think Teddy Roosevelt could. He'd already been president, got upset at Taft, who came after, and he wanted to take him back. The Republican Party wouldn't nominate him, and so he went out with his bull moose party. And he could not buck the system. Um, probably gave the election to the Democratic opponent because he did. I don't know why you would say that Ross Perot didn't lose votes for the Electoral College because of the Electoral College. That makes no sense to me. I... It just doesn't make any sense to me, quite frankly. Well, there, <laughs> I, I just don't believe that. We were all around, those of us that were old enough, to vote in the 1992 election. We all heard people debating whether they should or should not vote for Ross Perot. And I, I know that I know people who didn't vote for Ross Perot because they were afraid that Clinton would get in office. And I know people, I, I, I've heard people argue the other way. I, I personally think that. Um, it was costing, costing Bush more than Clinton, but people dispute that too. So I, I don't really know why you would make that argument. Dean, I'm David Ray. 
David Ray with the Federal Society. Uh, I, I have one very quick answer to Dr. Koza's question about why have not other states adopted it. Georgia did essentially have that system with the unit rule until that was thrown out. I mean, that's, that's the one I know of, and, and it wasn't abolished because the people of Georgia rose up uh, in, in, in anger at their own circumstances. I believe it was litigated, and, and, and the court said that they could no longer do that, but there was one example. Uh, but but my, 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 I guess what this really seems to me to fall, uh, the fault line here is the worship of a majority vote over everything else in the case of the popular election. It seems that, that, that there was a, a, an interest that the Founding Fathers must have had in not having a majority be the, a, a majority of, of a popular vote, should there have been a popular election. The first election, there wasn't even a popular vote. But, but, but there must have been, rather, a recognition that the Constitution was a compact of states rather than a compact between the people and the federal government. And because of that, states' interests were trying to be protected. And I believe that's why uh, that, that was done. And, and, and the Electoral College is a, is, a, is a vital component of that. And I believe that's, that's really why the Electoral College is, 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 is an integral part of the federalist and non-central uh, check and uh, check that we have in our electoral system. But I do have a question, which is slightly off of that. It goes back to the recount issue. I actually concede your point that, that, that candidates focus on the states that, that they think are the swing states and they ignore the ones that, that they think are either in the bag or are hopelessly lost. But if a race were incredibly close, the 2000 election being a perfect example, it would seem to me especially if it was even closer, that you wouldn't want to just recount. In fact, you couldn't just recount the one or two states you thought were close. You'd really have to recount every single precinct in the United States because failure to do so could, could, could leave uncounted votes, fraud, etc., undiscovered in a race that you are asserting is close. And the point that I've heard raised numerous times is that none of these states, uh, A, is inherently... Uh, including a mechanism that triggers a recount in the in the event of a nationwide close election. But B, even if 100% of the states that adopted this statute included such a provision, as Mrs. Ross pointed out earlier, there's nothing that compels one of these recalcitrant holdout states from doing the same. And in the absence of a recount in every single precinct of the United States, an election that were determined nationwide by fewer than, say, 100 votes might still really, truly be in doubt, such that your system would surely yield an outcome, but you wouldn't really be certain you'd gotten the right outcome. And that's my question to you. Does that concern you, or do you just consider that to be just, just one of the kinks in the system you're willing to live with? Well, first of all, you've raised a number of questions there. Uh, First of all, there is a remedy now. In fact, uh, it's needed now more than it will be needed after the National Popular Vote Plan goes into effect, and that is Congress has authority right now uh, to over the count uh, and has exercised that authority uh, in requiring the certificates of ascertainment uh, to uh, include the popular vote count as supporting evidence for the uh, 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 choice of electors. So uh, there is congressional power right now to... Uh, uh, set up a uniform uh, national uh, recount system, uh, and frankly, it's needed more now with the current system because the current system produces these uh, artificial crises far more often than a, a regular vote would do. But there is a, a remedy at the federal level. Uh, there's certainly a remedy at the state level. And you say, you know, 
the Florida election was close. Uh, it was close in fo Florida, 537 votes, but nationally it wasn't close. It was 537,000 votes. Uh, the average change in a recount at the state level is 274 votes. There is no way if you had recounted the national votes uh, 10 times that you would upset a half million vote uh, margin. And as for reaching the right conclusion, you know, there are people somewhere who think that uh, uh, that didn't happen in 2000 because uh, the recount was never completed. So, uh, you know, when it gets real, real close, somebody is going to be real, real unhappy, uh, and probably the guy who was slightly ahead is going to be the one who wants to run off the clock and uh, prevent a recount, and the guy who's slightly behind will want a vigorous recount. Um, Let me conclude this with a very um, quick question and ask you to respond, John, and it's David's first point. Uh, don't you think that the Electoral College reflects the concern of the framers that the states count for something in elections, which is, helps to explain why it's mostly winner-take-all with respect to the electoral votes? And in this move to a kind of majoritarianism, the state's role is diminished, uh, and that's one of the safeguards that they put in the Constitution to make sure that states did count more than otherwise would be the case with a national majoritarian vote? Uh, well, the states do count, and the states will decide. So if states decide it's uh, in their interest and uh, if they respond to the 75% uh, uh, support that polls show exist in uh, virtually every state, um, they'll do it. If they don't think it's in their interest, uh, they won't do it. Well, that is tantamount to saying that the current voters think that the framers got it wrong. Is that the idea? No, I don't know that anybody thinks the framers got it wrong. I can tell you national popular vote thinks the framers got it exactly right. They gave this power exclusively to the states. These electoral votes belong to the states for good reason, uh, to protect us from an overreaching president uh, uh, with a toting Congress uh, uh, in writing national election rules. And uh, I think uh, you'll see more and more states realize that uh, the president should be elected the way each state legislator was elected. The candidate with the most votes wins. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, we're going to have to bring this to a close now. Please join us for lunch upstairs. The books are available outside. Please welcome. Thank you.